Hello and welcome to Achievement Oriented, the Ringer's video game podcast, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I am Ben Lindbergh in New York City. Join me on the other line, my constant co-host, Jason Concepcion. Hello. Hello, Jason. How are you? I'm fantastic. Not concussed. Wonderful. Ah, it's been a while since you I mean, concussed. Listen, it's, it's hard to say with the, uh, the, the long-term the symptoms, they, linger. They, they linger. So it's hard to yeah. tell. Yeah, right. So we've got a lot to talk about today. Yeah. Later in this episode, our first politician in achievement-oriented history, Wonderful. Representative Chris Lee, Democrat from Hawaii. He is fighting the good fight against loot boxes and predatory pricing in video games. He is one of the first to pick up that banner. So we're going to have him on to talk about how he's doing that. And just a few minutes, we're going to have our friends and colleagues, Victor Lukerson, Justin Charity on to do a little year in review on Nintendo and Nintendo Switch. We never tire of talking about those topics. Yeah. And Justin's been playing Xenoblade Chronicles 2, so we're going to get his take on that as well. But I have something I want to tell you about just briefly before we get there. I'm going to tell you about what I've been playing this week. I have been playing Soma, which is now out on Xbox One. You've not played Soma, Soma, right? I have not. No. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) this game came out a couple years ago, 2015, for PS4 and PC. I think you would like this game. I like this game myself. Sell it to me. Yeah. So... This game is it's kind of a synthesis of like system shock slash bioshock atmosphere and setting. It is set in the future in an underwater rapture-esque facility. And it has sort of the loneliness, the voyeurism of Tacoma. You're in this deserted place. You're trying to figure out what went wrong. And then it has some of the kind of meditations on identity and AI that we've talked about with localhost a few years ago or a few months ago like is a is an AI a person where do you draw the line that sort of thing or something like the swapper which I enjoyed a few years ago where you're duplicating copies of yourself and you figure out are you the real original or is the copy the same so basically you are a guy in contemporary times in Toronto you have a head injury you go to the doctor Ooh. you get an experimental brain scan. That's what I need. That is that is probably what you need. <laughs> you probably should have had that. Yeah. But in this guy's case, he wakes up immediately, no sensation of any passage of time, but he wakes up in the 22nd century, post-apocalyptic, underwater. The Earth's surface has been scoured of all life, and so humanity is clinging to existence here in the bottom of the Atlantic. And... It's a it's a creepy game. It's a scary game. And that's why it's notable that I played it, because as I've acknowledged many times on this podcast, I am a video game coward. I don't typically play this type of game, which is why I didn't play it in 2015, despite the positive reception. So here's why I jumped in here and I. I won't spoil everything, although this game has actually been out in some form for a couple of years here. But you encounter, you know, broken down robots that don't know they're robots. They mm. think they're humans because they have AI that was transplanted from humans in the past. And you have to figure out whether you are one of them yourself, etc. It's very thought provoking, but it's scary. This is made by frictional games. They've made some very scary games in the past. And normally I would avoid this, but this game has safe mode. 
So the Xbox port has uh-huh. safe mode, which was not in the original game. And what it does is it essentially... It this makes sense now, Ben. Yeah, this is why this is an <laughs> this experiment. This all makes sense. I was I was waiting to say, <laughs> Ben, how could, how could it be that you could be playing a survival horror game and now it makes sense? Yes, Everything yes. falls into place now, I understand. Yeah, this is a, a social experiment that I undertook this week to see if I could play a scary game uh, with safe mode. So what safe mode does is essentially it just makes the monsters not able to hurt you. So they're still there. <laughs> <laughs> They're still ben! like they're, <laughs> stay with me. Stay with me. All right, all right, all right. They're they're still scary looking. They're still <laughs> shambling around this environment. They're oozing. They're festering. They're like you know trailing you and charging you sometimes, but they can't actually hurt you. So like your your pulse starts pounding in the game and the Does screen it? starts shaking, <laughs> but you can't die. And so sure. I was wondering if this would make this game not scary enough that I could play it and I can report so, that it did. I was able so you're, to you're play this game to completion. You're, you're recommending me a game based on neutered <laughs> gameplay. Yeah. I played enough of unsafe mode <laughs> right. that I could gauge the difference. Be honest. More, played, than, more uh, or less than five minutes. Oh, uh, more. Definitely. Because the thing about Soma is there aren't that many monsters to begin with. And right. I think that's why the safe mode works. I was talking to the creative director and they never thought that this was something that would work, but a fan made a mod called wuss mode <laughs> for this game. <laughs> that was essentially safe mode. <laughs> Cause the thing about Soma was like the story is great and the setting is great, but the monsters part, not that great. It's really just kind of a distraction from the story. Like you can't fight right. back even in unsafe mode. So you're just kind of skulking around and hiding in the shadows and you can get killed, but it doesn't really do anything. You just come back to life. So in this particular case, they could have a safe mode and it doesn't really impair the game in any way. I would say it enhances it because you can just focus on the exploration and the story without running around and cowering in the corner and being too afraid of the monsters to listen to the audio logs and everything. So this worked for me and I don't think that the safe mode formula would work for everything. I think it works for Soma because the story is great and because the monsters weren't a big part of the game anyway. But I am pro safe mode. I advocate safe mode in every future horror game. And that's the only way you're going to get me to play it. So let's hope this trend spreads. I I did successfully complete a scary game this week and I wanted to share that. Listen, I'm proud of you. (laughs) I'm proud of you, Ben. Not not that proud. (laughs) I did play safe mode. (laughs) I have it still. I got to tell you, I was like just, I I wanted to interrupt and be like, Ben, how did you play this game? But then I was like, I'm just going to let Ben get it. And then just amazing. Yeah. This is incredible. (laughs) What a development. I hope it starts a trend. I hope that we get safe mode in everything. I want no sharp corners in any of my games. I don't want to be able to hurt myself. Just let me explore the space softly and at my leisure and i'll be happy so soma with safe mode go get it all right so let us take a very quick break and we'll be back with our pals justin and victor All right, so we are rejoined now by a couple colleagues in the New York office today. First, 
our friend Justin Charity. He's grown a beard since the last time we talked to him, what? but it hasn't changed him. He's still the same guy. Yeah, I walked into dinner the other night and I noticed a bearded man at the table. I barely recognized him. It was Justin Charity. Hey, Justin. I did the opposite of Jason moving to L.A. Like and then it. having like really short, tight <laughs> hair and looking very fashionable. I look haggardly. It's a good yeah. winter look, though. Yeah, right. And we also have Victor Lukerson, not bearded. Hey, Victor. What's up? What's up? I do. I do have a somewhat of a beard. It's not like Justin's like luxurious, (laughs) but there is a beard here. Yeah, there's some hair there. All right. So we wanted to talk to both of you guys about Nintendo, about Switch, about Xenoblade in Justin's case, maybe some Switch ports stuff and Victor, we wanted to have you on because you wrote this week. Right now, TheRinger.com is running all sorts of year-end, year-in-review content. And someone had to do the big Nintendo turnaround story. And you were the one who did. You called it the best tech story of 2017, Nintendo's resurgence. And we had you on one of the early episodes of this podcast last November. And a lot has changed since then. We talked about Nintendo. We talked about the Switch, but there have been so many developments, primarily Ryan Reynolds playing Detective P- Pikachu in a live-action Pikachu film, <laughs> but also some other stuff happened, and you wrote about that other stuff. So remind us where Nintendo was a year ago or at its low point, which was not long ago, and it's really an incredible turnaround. Yeah, no, you're totally right, Ben. I mean, a year ago, Nintendo was... Uh, pretty screwed uh, as a company. The Wii U, which was their last system, it came out in 2012. After like the massive success of the Wii, which everybody and their cousin and their grandma had about a right. decade ago, um, they decided to follow that up with the Wii U, which was a poor choice of name. A lot of people didn't know whether it was a, a new system or like an add-on, that kind of thing. Um, it was underpowered compared to the PS4 and the Xbox One, which came out shortly afterwards. And honestly, it just did not have as many of like the main franchises. I mean, I remember getting a Wii U in 2013, I think, for Zelda, and that did not come out for many, many years afterwards. So, right. I, I mean, I, I ended up selling mine off. Not in getting a Wii U ever. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I, I interviewed several Nintendo fans who were just like, "I'm not going to get this thing because there aren't enough games for it." Um, right. So anyway, I mean, the Wii U only sold uh, about 13 million units, which is a horrible number for a mainstream console, basically. That's getting close to, like, Dreamcast level, I think, actually. So Yeah, the Switch is, like, almost at that level already, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think they've already said that by the time the Switch is a year old, it will have outsold what the Wii U did in its entire life, so. Wow. So what do you attribute the success, the unforeseen success? I mean, we were optimistic. You wrote a piece when we first found out about the Switch, and you were hopeful, but there were a lot of questions unanswered, and... Maybe some of them haven't been completely answered, but I think a lot of them have been answered a lot more convincingly than we expected when we talked about a year ago. So whether it's the first-party support, the third-party support, or just how much fun it is to take video games with you wherever you go, what do you think it is that maybe we underestimated about the Switch? Well, I mean, I think part of it's just there in the name itself. People actually really do love that uh, Switch functionality. Yes. Um, for this for this story, I interviewed a lot of uh, Nintendo gamers who had not bought Nintendo in a while, and they all mentioned the fact that having being able to you know pick up the game and either take it with you on a vacation or play it on the couch while your wife's watching television or just all these other use cases, people find that really valuable actually. So I think that's something that is like really simple. But you know, if you watch a 30, 30 second commercial for the Switch, you get 
why that's a cool gimmick and why that would be useful in your life. So I think that might be a thing that appealed to more people than you know us or Nintendo actually thought. You talk a lot about, um, write a lot about Zelda in, in your article. Um, seems to me like the, the success of the Switch really is a testament to the importance of the launch title. Mm-hmm. Do you agree? Like, there's just got to you've just got to have that hammer launch title. Um, Xbox One, I think, kind of searching for that. A console is just going to launch soft, especially at the price point. You're talking about a three hundred dollar price right. point for what is essentially right. an underpowered console. But because of Zelda and then the functionality, all of a sudden you've you've got a hit. Oh no, for sure. I think it was interesting with Zelda too because. Everybody knew it was going to be great because Zelda games are great, but nobody knew it was going to be one of the best games of all time. So I just feel like the the fact that Nintendo was able to do something so pretty unique and, you know, eye-catching with that game got a lot of people really excited. Just based out of, like, latent Nintendo fandom was, like, unleashed really rapidly, and that sort of, like, sparked this sort of Switch uh, hysteria that's kind of still going on. It's still hard to find. I just think in Japan, people still are lining up for it every week because it's still sold out. So, I mean, definitely, like, that spark was necessary. And without that, I think that some of the other issues with, like, the lack of online play or the high price would have ended up undermining the system pretty early. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned the processing power gap, and that gap has grown since the Switch came out because now we've got the PS4 Pro, we've got the Xbox One X. There's an enormous difference in what those consoles can do, and yet it hasn't seemed to hold the Switch back. And you cover tech as a whole, not just video games. And I'm curious, is it common for the underdog, at least in terms of the technology? And, you know, you could say that the portable nature of the Switch is also a technological selling point, but is it common for the system, the piece of hardware that is maybe not the most powerful to have the best year to overtake the consoles that can put out the most gigaflops and teraflops? Does that tend to impress consumers or does it ultimately usually not come down to that? I mean, I think when you look across consumer tech, we're sort of reached this point where a lot of things are like good enough. You know, like everybody's not racing out to get the iPhone X right now. I mean, Apple also released like a lower, the iPhone SE system's like a lower tech version of that that's cheaper. You're thinking about televisions, nobody's really checking for like 3D TVs or even 4K that much. Like people are happy with their HD TVs. And with gaming, it's kind of the same thing. Like something of the strength of, you know, a little bit above PS3, like looks really nice and looks especially nice on a handheld. That's like, even if the Switch is underpowered, there's nowhere else you can take Skyrim on the go or Zelda on the go. So, I mean, I think that this whole Nintendo's had this issue for the last decade where their systems are like comically underpowered, but we finally reached the place where like being comically underpowered is like good enough, basically. So, right. Yeah. I feel like for them, it's working out. Well, Justin, you're in the market for Doom and you're deciding Ooh. between the powerful console version of Doom or the weaker console version of Doom. Jason, you are playing Doom for playing Switch. Doom. So, I think Justin seeks your counsel here well, what do you me, think yeah, of, let, of doom on switch let me advocate for doom on switch i did not i was not uh that impressed with doom on console because it's it is in a, a lot of ways a throwback to the core mechanics of doom it's a you know mm-hmm. you strafe back and forth single player game um not a lot of ai uh sparkle you know these are these are zombies that just kind of sort of stand there and attack you. Uh, Love that but, lunge, uh, that melee right. lunge. Oh, man. Multiplayer is not great. But then you play it on the Switch, and all of a sudden, uh, it is, it's 
the good enough level of the game plus the portability of the console and it's great. It really is great. It does not look as good on 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 the Switch like I'm playing Skyrim also and you can really see the difference in terms of the port. With Skyrim on the smaller screen I I barely notice it until I put it on my TV. With Doom I can really see the texture difference. That said the gameplay is is great and um it, it almost becomes like a platformer when you when you play it on on handheld. Mm. Um I would do I, it's it's it is at the full price, $60. But I've got to tell you, Justin, I'm enjoying it. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you the thing about the Switch that sort of makes the prospect of buying Doom weird to me. Sure. It's that I, I would say that since I, I bought my Switch, I've played, um, whether, whether you're talking about 2D games or, or um, full-dimensional games, I've played a lot of more whimsical Japanese games Mm. on the Nintendo Switch. And so Doom would be the first naturalistic game I'd be playing on it. And I think it that that's when it stops becoming this question about how good do the graphics look? And it becomes more about, is this the type of detail that I want to see on this cute portable console <laughs> that I associate with Breath of the Wild and Cave Story and Mario Kart 8? I think that's the thing in my brain that sort of has me hung up on looking at Doom on a Nintendo Switch. Well, we all know which you isn't hate the Breath fault of the Wild. Like, yeah. I don't hate Breath of the Wild. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. We're going to do we're teasing a segment <laughs> that will happen later. Yeah. But yeah. I don't hate Breath of the Wild. <laughs> <laughs> but if, if Switch can handle Doom, I mean, it's one thing to run Skyrim, which is a last-gen game. Obviously, it's been remastered and upgraded. But if it can handle Doom at a competent level where the frame rate is maybe not as high but steady at least and it's just as playable then it can handle most things this generation and victor usually when you have a a breakout product like this that does something innovative and everyone likes it and wants to buy it you would see copycats and you would see other companies try to put their switch clone out in the market or adapt their current consoles in some way to be more like the switch but it doesn't seem like that's happening. It seems like Nintendo's kind of carved out this corner and other companies are content to or resigned to let them have it for the foreseeable yeah. future. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Uh, Sony's already said sort of post-Switch mania that they don't plan to launch another handheld right now. Uh, on the handheld space, Sony's been trying to compete with Nintendo for the last 10 years to no avail, essentially. Um, so I think they've kind of decided they're not going to go at that again. Microsoft seems very confused in general about whether they want to like keep making consoles even or you yeah. know get everybody like make, play Xbox games on Windows. So I think a handheld from them would make a little sense. Um, so yeah, I mean Nintendo sort of strangely made this thing that's like much harder to imitate because even with the Wii when that blew up, you saw like both Microsoft and Sony kind of do a Me Too version, but it's harder to imagine that happening with the Switch. Uh- to talk about Microsoft for a second because it really seems like the the selling point for the Xbox brand in general is like, we have the most powerful console. That's it. Um, is there a future for that? Like, even as we've moved into the into the era of the midlife cycle console, um, is the lesson of Switch really now because everything is so powerful and good enough? Really, is enough? Uh, does it put the onus back on innovation? Yeah, I mean, I think. We definitely think the Switch definitely proves that 
you know, more power is not automatically going to get you um, the most sales. Um, I don't know. I feel like processing power is only going to matter a lot again when or if the VR switch happens. And, you know, you need that to create greater fidelity or that kind of thing. But we're talking about looking on like a flat television screen. Um, like I can't, it's been a long, it's been a while since I played a game. Like Breath of the Wild was the most innovative open world game I've played in a long time. And that game was made with less power. That game is made for the Wii U. (laughs) So Charity, what do you think about the uh, Breath of the Wild being the most innovative open world game? (laughs) Uh, that, I mean, the, that, that okay. So this is well. This is where you have to remind everyone that I'm the gaming amateur. You know, I'm the naive. But that's because it's my. I mean, Breath of the Wild is my first Zelda game, so I don't have a. I don't have a strong grasp of like. Sure, sure. Breath of the Wild and the lineage of Zelda games. Right. It's just I. I struggle sometimes when I talk to people about the things that like. I, I do you guys remember the article that was written about the sort of map design? Uh, and like the use of triangles Triangle, yeah, to right. obscure vision, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The triangle theory of Breath of the Wild, and mm-hmm. I remember reading something like that and thinking, "I don't. This seems very galaxy brain. It seems like you're <laughs> demon- it, it seems like somebody <laughs> illustrating very common things that you could say about a lot of maps, but because it's sort of, um, I think more minimalist, and also because it's Nintendo, people trying to galaxy." bringing their way to like that being mind blowing in a way that I just don't always understand when people talk about Breath of the Wild. Like I, it's a game that I like a lot. So it's a conspiracy essentially, (laughs) a vast conspiracy that is being, that is being, that is being foisted upon the world in order in order like, to, like in the order way to I pretend think that, that Zelda is really good. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I basically, the way you described it earlier in the segment of like Zelda is a very strong launch title. That's yeah. basically what I see. it Like that's how I grasp Breath of the Wild being a great game. It's a great sort of, this console just dropped and this game is sort of, it's just, it perfectly demonstrates everything great about the system. That stuff I get. I just struggled to understand how a story with like, such hollow characterizations and such a patently uninteresting story. You make your own adventure, Justin. You I know. create the story. <laughs> no, and, 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 and again, I played that game for countless hours. I totally get that. It's just, to me, that is great for what it is. And maybe, and I, I think this is a weird instance of me maybe just um, wanting for plot in a way right. that makes me mm. basic, <laughs> you know? Right. Well, like, I think that those weird memory cutscenes with Zelda throughout the game aren't cutting it, especially with that, like, you know, generic cable British voice acting <laughs> that I can't stand. <laughs> All right. You, really... you got to keep your powder dry for our podcast in a couple of weeks when we relitigate this, but... Victor, obviously, it's not new for Nintendo to do something original with hardware, but I think the thing that really set their efforts apart this year was just how they really seem to embrace the outside world in ways that Nintendo typically doesn't. They're kind of usually out on an island doing their own thing, and their own thing is great, but it was starting to feel a little stale and a little formulaic in certain ways. And this is the year when it just felt like They took some cues from other games and other genres, but they did the things that those games do even better. And then just even in little non-game-related ways, whether it was a theme park or movies, things that Nintendo historically hasn't really embraced, it just seems like maybe there's been a bit of a changing of the guard in leadership to people who are 
in their 50s instead of their 70s or something. That's the Nintendo youth movement. But it does seem like they're trying some new things, and it turns out they're really good at those things too. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's exciting about the Switch, like I feel like the last 10 years of Nintendo has been sort of watching them and just being like, why won't you just do this? Why won't you just like behave <laughs> in a logical, coherent way? Yeah. And they seem to have sort of just suddenly decided to do that. Even with a franchise like Zelda, where they had sort of gotten so far into having these like convoluted devices that sort of the game center around or whatever. And now they're just like, okay, actually, we're going to make a very simple, basic uh, formula that takes you know cues from modern game design in a way that they haven't done before, and we can prove we can do it the best. So that naturally makes the game more exciting and also more accessible to people who don't, don't care about Zelda, but, you know, love Skyrim or love Minecraft. So I think that's one reason this game's probably going to end up being one of the best-selling ones, because it actually makes sense to gamers who care about Zelda and also uh, those who are new to the franchise. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talk about the shortage, about the, the fact that the Switch is just incredibly hard to find. Um, still is, which is surprising. Um, how much of that... Let's go to conspiracy corner. How much of that is 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 on purpose? Because they've released several other pieces of hardware in the in the intervening months. Um, the Nintendo Super Nintendo um, standalone system console that has every single Super Nintendo game, and the regular NES console that has every single game that was released on the system on it. And those were also like super 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 hard to find. It's Hard not to feel like this is a tactic in order to drum up hype for the console. Now, certainly the Switch deserves it, but um, is this is this something that they leaned into? I mean, with the NES Classic, that had to be a setup like on purpose. Like, there's no way you're not going to know that people are going to love some of the best selling games of all time for sixty dollars in a box. So, I mean, I think with that one, they definitely were doing it on purpose. Um, I know this. I read an article earlier this year about this and. Shortly afterwards, I found out that with the Switch, actually, they've been competing with Apple for uh, certain parts of the device. So that sort of provides some explanation. Obviously, Apple's a huge company and might have more sway with suppliers than a company like Nintendo would. And it's also uh, with the Switch in particular, after the spectacular failure of the Wii U, it's easy to see why they would have been conservative um, out of the block. But according to recent reports, they're going to be making as many as 25 to 30 million Switches now. So... I mean, I think now that they've, you know, either through accident or conspirational uh, <laughs> tactics, created so much excitement around the system, they're going to definitely turn on the spigot for sure. Nice. Mm-hmm. And Nintendo has a new big game that we haven't touched on yet, and this is Xenoblade Chronicles 2, which was published by Nintendo. It's developed by Monolith Soft, which is a a subsidiary of Nintendo that has collaborated on some big Nintendo games like Super Smash Bros. Brawl and Skyward Sword and Breath of the Wild. And Justin, I don't want to say that I strong-armed you into playing this game, but I, I sent several insistent Slack messages trying to persuade you to play this game, and there was some backroom horse trading going on with assignments for our 1998 video game retrospective series for next year involved here. But whatever the motivations, whatever it took to get you to try it, you've been playing Xenoblade Chronicles 2. It seems like this is a game that would be very much up your alley because you like games that would take months for us to finish. <laughs> so, <laughs> I hate you so much. So what do you think? You know, you know what I... You know what I found about this game? Because, um, I mean, you you know my origin story, Ben. Mm-hmm. I basically got back into gaming because I bought a PlayStation 4 to play Final Fantasy 15. Yes. 
Um, and I've actually revisited Final Fantasy 15 in the past month and gotten frustrated with that game all over again. And so this was a, a multiplayer Xenoblade. mode now. Wow. And fishing. Yeah, VR not, fishing. You think I'm going to throw any more money at that game? <laughs> you think so? <laughs> um, but this this game I sort of used as an opportunity to sort of clean Final Fantasy 15 out of my system as far as <laughs> Japanese RPGs go. Um, mm-hmm. But because I've been doing that, because I've used it as a sort of palate cleanser, I've actually, for the first time this year, been playing this game pretty slowly instead yeah. of just walking around settings and talking to shop owners and doing all of the side questy stuff that I otherwise would totally push past in any other game. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I find this, I find Blade Chronicles 2, which I know very little about. I just sort of went cold into the game because you insisted. I find yeah, it to be a very a, serene a game. Two-decade-old series that right. you're jumping into here. And I, I don't think you need to know the whole backstory, but none of us knows the whole backstory. <laughs> right. I mean, to me, the main things about it, the main qualities that I find captivating about it are, one, that it has great music. It just has, like, gorgeous soundtrack. Um mm-hmm. And two, it's incredibly anime. <laughs> Everything about it's it is archetypically anime. I know. I had your best interest in mind here with this recommendation. Uh, I'm ch- it's like five minutes before you encounter a girl with cat ears in this game. And I was like, all right, let's go. Let's do this. A small girl with cat ears. All right. People wearing like strange fox masks. It's uh-huh. great. Um is there yeah, a blade called Zeno in it? <laughs> there better blades. There are blades. <laughs> there are strange terms for people who are able to wield blades. Yeah, it, it's a very like lorey, like lore heavy, anim, animu. <laughs> <game>. <laughs> um, and I like it a lot. I like it. If anything, this is a game. Um, you know, I was saying before that I have angst about games that I would prefer to play on a PlayStation versus on a right. Switch. This is a game that I'm incredibly happy that is on the Switch specifically because it's mm-hmm. like it's perfect to play like right when I'm going to bed or perfect to play if I'm on like a long train or bus ride um, mm-hmm. in a way that like I will never play this on the TV because the graphics just aren't really central in that way. Mm-hmm. And if like I'm just going to play Final Fantasy 15 on my TV. <laughs> but I don't yeah. know. This is just like a really serene kind of a cutesy RPG um, mm-hmm. Is it more of a oh. traditional turn-based type thing or more of an action RPG? The, the thing that looks appealing to me is just the, the scope of the world. It seems giant and the art design seems really, I mean, there's like what the world is is balanced on the backs of these titan creatures or something and the people are worried that they're going to fall out of the sky. Am I completely butchering this? <laughs> Yes, although I will say, like early on, I I walked off a pier and thought I had like died, but instead I was like walking in the shallow mist. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I'm still not clear on a lot of that. And it's, I'm glad you asked about the the combat because it's weird. The, the, a lot of the systems in this game seem a little bit I don't want to say convoluted, but there's a lot of tutorials. There's yeah. a lot of explanation. There's a lot of controls that have to be explained for different. Um, yeah, friend of the podcast, of Jason Trier, really panned the game because he he just said it's like going out of its way to waste the player's time, essentially wow. in a lot of ways. Oh, that's weird. I haven't, I, you know, I haven't perceived it as wasting my time, but I think only because I've deliberately played it very slowly, and mm-hmm. so it it doesn't feel overwhelming. It's just conspicuous where it's like 
every battle I've played so far has had a tutorial come up and be like, okay, when in this battle, I'm going to explain this function to you. It it just yeah. feels like there's a lot of there's definitely a lot of uh, there's a lot of gameplay tutorial, <laughs> tutorials in this game. Um, yeah. There's a lot of exposition. What's the game? Um, could you could you give us like a what's a good corollary for this game? Uh, if you're into Japanese RPGs, you will like this game. Is it is it Persona Five ish, Final Fantasy ish? I wouldn't say. Oh God, I don't I don't know what I would compare it to. I mean, the thing is, like, for one. I'm still trying to figure out the rhythms of the combat system. Mm. It, it feel the the combat so far, it just doesn't feel that complex. So it can feel kind of button mashy. Um, and I I don't know. I find with combat RPGs, like a lot of the time, it de- the make or break thing I find with people is that if they don't like the combat system, that totally turns them off of a game. And so, if you I don't know. I I get it, the first thing I would imagine putting someone off on this game would be the combat system because it is kind of like it feels to me at least kind of blunt um and there's like a lot of character shouting and you know it's just a very i don't know i I maybe just too early into the game to have like a conclusive Mm -hmm. sense of what it's it's most like i wouldn't say it's like a final fantasy game though Mm -hmm. i would not I like this new version of Justin. He's just taking the what? time to smell the roses, talk to all the shopkeepers in the right. RPG towns, letting his facial well, hair curious. grow. I know. <laughs> well, I'm curious. Okay, so Ben, you explain to the people, you explain to the listeners, what is what are the qualities of the game that you thought uh, would appeal to me when you bullied me? I, <laughs> <laughs> Partly it was that I want you to play Xenogears, the first game in this series for our 98 games series and I figured it would be fun for you to go back and play the first one and also the most recent one but I just know that you like giant RPGs from Japan with anime elements (laughs) it sounds like that was pretty (laughs) spot on so far so yeah I I don't well okay so that's that's that that's specifically why I wouldn't compare it that's specifically why I wouldn't compare it to Final Fantasy, though, is that, like, the contrast I would set is I love Final Fantasy games because I usually love Final Fantasy stories, whereas this game mm. is sort of the inverse of that, where it's this game is so far totally sold me on aesthetic and music, even mm-hmm. in stretches so far where I was just like, I don't really understand what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, that would never, in a Final Fantasy game, if that were happening, I would probably stop playing it, whereas in this, I'm totally at peace with it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So if we can just circle back and wrap up the larger Switch discussion, do you guys think there are any questions that the system still has to answer? Obviously, one of the big concerns coming in was the third-party support. And then, as always, it's are the flagship first-party games going to be there? And they have been so far, but now that you have Breath of the Wild out of the way and Mario out of the way and... Nintendo has kind of used up its its biggest bullets in the first year here. Do you think that there's going to be a lull or have they established that this is just such a desirable system that they're not going to have issues providing the the content that they've struggled to provide in the past? Well, they have one humongous bullet we haven't talked about yet. Uh, Pokemon is supposed to be coming out next year. Mm-hmm. And since the Switch is both the replacement for the handheld line and the console line, it's going to be like a real legit Pokemon RPG. And, I mean, if you're like a console-only gamer, that might not matter to you. But on the handheld side, Pokemon is basically Nintendo's biggest franchise. So 
It is my dream that they will give Pokemon to uh, Nintendo EAD, who made mm-hmm. Breath of the Wild, and do an open-world Pokemon with the Pokemon running around out in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. See, that would... Okay. All right. You're, you're selling me retrospectively on Breath of the Wild even harder, though, when you yeah. say that. But I love the idea of that. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the point is they, they still have a few, like, really big hitters to come. Um, I would say the, the biggest question is whether they're going to be able to have some sort of, like, Wii Sports-esque casual game that sort of pulls in a lot of people that don't play traditional games. Mm. Uh-huh. You know, the reason that Wii blew up was really more, I think, because of stuff like Wii Sports or Wii Fit and that stuff versus yeah. Zelda, Mario, et cetera. So. And I guess ARMS and 1-2 Switch were kind of the attempts to replicate that, but didn't really replicate that. Although they did sell, as you pointed out in your piece. A lot of things sold this year. Yeah, no, there's kind of a weird... Maybe also part of it is just the fact that because everybody ignored the Wii U, people were just like really hyped about Nintendo. You know, it's, almost, it's like an extra dose of nostalgia because no one's really messed with that company for the last like seven or eight or nine years. So, yeah, I still have a, a picture that I snapped, Jason, on the day that you and I, whenever that was yes. in January, when we first touched How, the Switch, you just beaming with the Switch in your hands. Little did you know what. How that relationship was going to blossom in the you were to on come. you were on like twenty five minutes sleep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> morning events. Okay, okay, but where where is Super Smash Brothers? That's where is it? That is a great question. Where is it? That is a great like. Where is it? A great question. I'm asking this to somebody who sucks at Super Smash Brothers. Yeah, I, I mean, suck at it and love that game and. The, uh, where is it? The strange lack of support from Nintendo for one of its really most popular brands and just a title that absolutely keeps going no matter what, no matter the evolutions in consoles, tech, whatever, is really startling. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. I don't yeah. understand it. My theory is that Nintendo would have ported the Wii U version by now, but then the Switch blew up. Right. And they're just like, all right, we're going to like lay in the cut for a while and hold this back until like sales start flagging, which might be quite a while from now. So it mm-hmm. might be a long time to get. Isn't Super that Smash antitrust? Brothers. Antitrust violation. I mean, <laughs> those are pretty fundamentally antitrust. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, what can we do about this? <laughs> what can we do about this? Here's my other question. I don't know, and you guys can help me understand this. But the the contemporary politics of Nintendo and Square Enix are, I, you know, I have no use for buying the ports of Final Fantasy VII and X that are on the PlayStation Four. When can I play a Final Fantasy game on the Switch? Mm. Where I want I want that. You can play them on mobile now. I want I want Final Fantasy Seven on the Switch That's immediately. Actually I have no idea about the status of like virtual console or their like retro arc. Is that still happening? Yeah, we that, talk about that? that was another big question coming in, right? Was are you gonna be able to play the classic Nintendo titles from past generations? And there have been some that you could play, but the dream of just like a all access type of streaming subscription service where you can just go yeah. get any Nintendo game from any year. I don't think that has come any closer to becoming a reality. And we haven't mentioned uh, Splatoon, of course. A lot of us enjoyed Splatoon 2 this year. I just went back and finished it up recently, and I, I really like that game. And I think. Wait, what do you mean, finished up? The main story? The yeah. main. Yeah, just wow. okay, so the campaign. Multi- yeah, come on. Yeah, no, waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> the multiplayer continues to be great. I don't know what, I mean, oh man, I love, Both I still good. love the yeah. competitive play. Yeah. Splatoon 2. And of course, there's maybe a, a new Mario Kart on the way. 
maybe a new Mario Party on the way and Metroid, Metroid. in some far Metroid. distant future, <laughs> perhaps. But someday. Is Mario Party really a thing? I've never really understood. Mario Party has always seemed like this isn't real to me. <laughs> <laughs> Is Mario Party really popular? I mean, Mar- I mean, they made like 10 like, of them. Yeah. Yeah. Really? <laughs> there are 10 Mario parties? I think there are what? literally 10 yeah, Mario parties. Yeah, I think there's 10. There yeah. are 10. I don't know, man. I don't know. All right. I'll, I'll give it a try. If it comes out, have me on. I'll... Mario Party 10 came out in 2015. So, yeah. Yeah. It was strong. Recently one for the 3DS, but... Yeah, I've never been Did a Mario, Mario Black Party Mario? person. What is? But. We can talk about it offline. I'm just curious about Mario Party. You want, you want to know the plot of Mario Party? Is that your question? <laughs> Do more Smash. <laughs> it's a plot you are. It's just if whoever's working on Mario Party, maybe take a smoke break and go over to work on getting Smash. <laughs> Prioritize. That's what I'm saying. Prioritize. Yeah. That would be a fair trade. Yeah. All right. Well, we encourage everyone to go to TheRinger.com, read Victor's story about Nintendo's resurgence, the best tech story of 2017. Was yep. there much competition for that title this year? It, it, was, like there it was a Well, you know the year. Xbox has the most powerful console out. I mean, I, <laughs> it does. That's true. Yeah. What were the, the runner-ups for best tech story of 2017? There were not a lot of positive tech stories this year. All right. Yeah, I don't even know. Like, an, and emojis, maybe? Mm-hmm. HQ's already... There's another story today that shows the future dystopia HQ is going to bring yeah, on TheRinger.com. Do com. we need to oh, talk sorry. about HQ on this podcast? Is that... It's I a ha- game. Oh, that's a game, technically. Technically. Yeah, I played We've it, talked I played about it a little bit. Google Doodles. We've talked about Pokemon yeah. Go. We could talk about HQ. It's definitely the most popular place to complain about lag right now. <laughs> All right. Not in my household. <laughs> Where the popular lag complaint is about Final Fantasy 15 load screens, but <laughs> I will stop talking about Final Fantasy 15 on this podcast. All right, Justin, keep grooming that beard. We will bring you back in a couple of weeks to hash out some of the best games of this year. It's been a pleasure. Yes, thanks, guys. Thank you. And Victor, thank you as well. No problem. It's been great. All right, so we will be right back with Representative Chris Lee of the Hawaii House of Representatives to talk about loot boxes. So we are joined now by, I believe, the first politician to appear on this podcast. His name is Chris Lee. He is a Democrat who represents the 51st District in the Hawaii House of Representatives. Representative Lee, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it's great to be. It's great to be a first. <laughs> great to be with you. <laughs> so, from perusing your record a little bit, I've learned that some of your major issues are the major issues in the country today. Whether it's climate change or equal rights, gun control, election reform. How did you go from championing causes that many politicians are talking about to championing this cause of potentially predatory pricing in video games, which I mean, almost no politicians are talking about? <laughs> um, well, I think the fact that that almost nobody's talking about it doesn't mean it's a real issue. And I mm-hmm. greatly expect, actually, in the coming months that it becomes one of those big issues that a lot more people are going to be talking about. Mm. But um, for me, you know, we've heard for some time from um, constituents, in particular a couple of teachers who uh, had students who've had some issues with this. Um, but for me, I mean, I, I've been gaming since um, way, way back. So I, I've been quite familiar with the evolution of the industry at 
particular what's happened with the business model and microtransactions and everything else over the last couple of years. So I think that's really, um, uh, it's something I've been paying attention to for a while. Uh, Representative Lee, could you talk about, um, from your perspective, what, what is, what's the problem and, and frame the issue for our listeners? Well, I think there's a, there's a couple of things, but um, generally I think it's this, that people feel like um, what was once um, something which they went to as a hobby or a passion or a, a way to escape has um, turned into something which has begun to exploit them, which they feel they have uh, lost control over, is trapping them into a cycle that is far more than they bargained for. I think that's generally the consensus out there from folks who play the games. I think from uh, a lot of the families that we're hearing from, it's a little bit different story because it's about it's about their kids generally uh, and their access to games which are no longer transparent. And if you're a parent, you really have lost the ability to control the environment in which your kids are playing, and that can have significant financial um, and health repercussions. And I think there's definitely a frustration that it feels like nobody's talking about this, nobody's done anything about it, but yet the stories of personal um, uh, harm and and that sort of thing continue to grow. Mm -hmm. And as a gamer yourself, you know that microtransactions and loot boxes really run the gamut from fairly innocuous and cosmetic to the kind of thing we're talking about, where there is that potential to exploit addictive tendencies. Do you draw distinctions there? Is there a certain line that when a game has this type of microtransaction or that type of loot box that you feel like that crosses over into territory where they're really trying to take advantage of people in a way that maybe they won't be prepared for? Yeah, I think it's a good distinction to make because I think it's one that, um, uh, one, not a lot of people, at least in the, the outside world, are really paying attention to. But if you're, if you're, if you're a, a consumer and a gamer and, and you're in the midst of it, I think people understand this. But I think um, to sort of reframe it just for a second, when it comes to trying to address the issue, I think um, what's really most important is how do you distinguish the mechanisms that are causing psychological um, uh, addiction or other sorts of similar kinds of harm and figure out how to address those. And so I think it really comes down to um, uh, the mechanisms that are paid. So, for example, games of chance, so your typical loot box, for example, um, where there's a tangible reward. Uh, But I think what you're getting at is, you know, if you have like a new skin you want to get for your character, right? It doesn't have a real direct effect on progression or gameplay. Um, and I think there is, there's a little bit of a distinction there, because, um, but it comes down to the way in which I think the game sets it up. Because if it's something like that, where you're competing with a bunch of friends, for example, in an online game, and you guys need to collectively get uh, to the next level or whatever it is, and there is something meaningful in the game mechanism, you're much more... Um, and you're encouraged much more and, in fact, compelled much more to spend that money and to gamble as opposed to um, doing so just to, you know, get a new hat on your head or whatever it might be. So I do think there's a distinction. Um, we're trying to figure out right now how do you legally quantify that mm-hmm. and uh, and figure out how to properly address it. Could you – I understand you're, you're still looking 
at potential remedies, but could you talk about some of the what the range of some of those things might be? Would it be an age limit? Would it be um, more clear messaging on game packaging? How how would you address this? Yeah, I think um, first of all, um, there's a lot of options out there, and we've heard from so many other um, you know experts in both the industry as well as the psychological and mental health community, um, as well as just people out there in the public and other elected officials. But I think it's boiling down to really three things. One, um, uh, you know, it's clear there's absolutely no question about the potential um, psychological issues and harm and and vulnerability to addiction when it comes to folks who are uh, uh, youth or young adult, um, which is why gambling is... um, you know, prohibited under 21. So I think that's uh, one aspect of it, is prohibiting the sale of games that include uh, these kinds of mechanisms that are, really do incur that kind of addiction and harm um, to those folks. The second piece is creating some transparency so that, uh, you know, when you buy a game on the front end, if you're whether it's on a shelf in a store or um, online on Steam or wherever, that there's some uh, mechanism or rating mechanism that, that provides that transparency and discloses right up front, this includes that kind of uh, uh, loot box or or whatever it might be. Uh, And the third piece, and that's complicated too, because what happens when um, you have like a a, a battlefront, you know, AAA title, let's say right before Christmas, that's put out there, rated T for teen, no problem. A bunch of parents go out and buy it for their kids. It's safe. And then the very first update come January 1st, introduces paid loot boxes and, and all the other stuff into it. How do you address that? So that's an important consideration. But, but the last piece of it, uh, which I'll note, is, um, which is sort of what China's tried to do, is create transparency so that players are given a fair shake and they know they're not being taken advantage of by um, these algorithms that are really you know, just impossible to see. So when you're buying uh, something, you are disclosed... Or uh, you have the odds disclosed to you right then and there for what the odds are of actually winning whatever the items are in that potential loot box, so that you understand that in fact there's actually a one in a million chance of winning, um, you know, this one thing. But there's one in ten chance of winning something that's probably much crappier. Mm-hmm. Um, but having that disclosure, I think, is important because people need to know um, what they're getting for their money. I think that's just basic um, common sense. Uh, good business practice, but is also respectful of one's customers. And here in the United States is, uh, I think, expected anytime people put their money up. Mm -hmm. And in the past, we've seen there is some precedent for the threat of some sort of regulation or government intervention, incentivizing the industry to regulate itself. That's how we ended up with the ESRB and the rating system that we have today. Would that sort of response be an acceptable one to you if that were to happen? Are you hoping that merely by raising this issue and publicizing it, that it will apply some pressure in a way that might make game makers more conscious of this and maybe more responsible about what they do without necessarily being forced to? Uh, You know, I think we had reached out uh, a few times to a few different game developers, uh, you know, long before this thing had blown up and we just never heard back. Uh, from any of them. And I think that is, more than anything else, is pretty telling 
over where the industry's priorities are and whether or not it's willing to enter into a conversation about how to address these issues. And the thing that's frustrating, I think, is the most important thing to note um, when we talk about whether or not the industry um, should be the one to regulate itself. And, and I'd like to see, I wish that you know, years ago the industry had listened to um, the people out there and taken steps to um, fix some of the things that were being raised and, and really not go this direction. But I think what's clear is the industry has been employing psychologists and um, experts to develop these mechanisms explicitly designed to take advantage of vulnerabilities in human psychology, which compel people to continue to play. It's the whole business model and basis behind gambling and casinos and loot boxes and all the same kinds of things in that vein, which um, are highly lucrative. And even having heard from folks within the industry, within some of these, I don't want to call them whistleblowers, but, mm. but folks who, who are clearly employed by some of these companies, um, who've reached out to say, yes, in fact, here's what we did uh, in full disclosure, because I think there is some concern in there and there's a conscience. Uh, it's clear that these were deliberate decisions being made, knowing full well the kinds of potential addiction or other uh, harm that could come of it for some people. Mm-hmm. And I think that is moral and ethical bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. So how can we ask now an industry which has clearly taken these steps, knowing the harm it could cause, to then regulate itself to prevent that harm from happening. It's a question of trust. And I think when it comes to the millions of people out there who buy these products, the millions more who are exposed, do we trust that the shareholders and the immense financial pressure being placed upon game developers to maximize their revenue streams by employing these kinds of mechanisms are going to suddenly decide to change and permanently change for the better. Mm -hmm. And I don't have an answer to that question, but it is definitely driving the conversation, which is why we've seen so many elected officials, well, at least I have, um, which I'm sure will be out there in the media in in the the weeks to come. Uh, But so many elected officials get involved and take interest, Republican, Democrat, uh, from states around the country. And of course, we've been talking with regulators in other countries. I mean, it just seems like such an obvious place where a difference can be made for the better. Mm-hmm. So I have no idea if that's answered your question. I kind of went off on a, a tangent there, but um, <laughs> no, it, it did, and that's what I was going to ask you. It, 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 yeah, as you can tell, I'm not at all passionate. about this. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, what I was going to ask you is whether you've had a lot of success imparting that passion to your colleagues, and you know, you're 36, and I think when you were first elected, you were the youngest member of the Hawaii State Legislature, and you're a gamer yourself, and it can be difficult to explain some of this to people who don't have that personal experience. When I was writing about it for a general audience last week, you have to constantly be thinking, okay, we can't take it for granted that someone understands what this term means. This is something gamers will understand, but not necessarily everyone else. And politicians, maybe in general, not the most youthful crowd, maybe have not had the same experience that you've had. So (laughs) how have you tried to convey the problem to your peers, to your colleagues, and have you had a lot of success in doing that? You know what's um, 
amazing is that you're, you're right. I was the youngest uh, uh, back in the day when I was first elected, but I'm definitely not now, uh, <laughs> which makes me feel like old hat. But um, there, are, there are an amazing number of people um, who grew up uh, as sort of the first generation of gamers, you know, back on the consoles and back in the days of uh, early PC games and everything else. And it's ironic that this generation has grown up and is now in places of um, authority to be able to help steer the gaming industry to a better place. I think for some of the gaming companies, I think that's probably a surprise. But um, what's encouraging is that I'm, you know, 36 now. There's at least um, four other, like, dedicated, serious gamers in elected office uh, in our legislature here in Hawaii. And what I found is there are so many others who reached out from other states, many of whom I didn't have to explain a single thing to. They called and they they got it yeah. because they're gamers too. Because we have an entire generation of folks who've grew up, grown up with this stuff, and it's not like we just stopped paying attention or stopped being engaged. You know, people people love games and they love franchises and they love um, the kinds of gameplay there is because it's good for all ages and that never gets old. So um, I think what's encouraging is that there are a lot of people out there who I'm sure will be coming out of the woodwork uh, in due time um, based on where they're at who actually get this stuff and they understand it. So I think that's what really separates um, you know, political debates about gaming in the past uh, with what's happening today. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think is positive. Yeah. So we'll let you go. Would you like to leave our listeners for any tips on what they can do if they want to get involved, if there yeah. is some activity that people can do to help at this early stage of the process? Yeah, I think, you know, what's exciting about this is that I feel like, you know, I didn't used to vote when I was even in college, really. Um, I didn't pay attention to issues. And I think there are a lot of people out there, even my own friends, who still probably don't pay much attention. In fact, one of my, my friends who campaigned for me said, uh, yeah, you know, I campaigned for you, I helped you out and everything, but I didn't actually vote for you, <laughs> which blew my mind. But I think this is an opportunity um, to get people engaged and show them that, indeed, you can actually make a difference, especially yeah. if people stand up together. And that's something that, that's a lesson I learned early on, um, which is why I ended up running for office in the first place. And I think if we can get a generation of people now who have not been engaged to get engaged on this issue, this is one of the easier issues to win and, and to do something good with. I mean, I've fought multi-billion dollar corporations and won before, not just by myself, but with coalitions of others. We organized and we stood up and we won. That actually can happen. And those battles were far more difficult than these battles because this has the attention of an entire generation of people who who enjoy these products and who are now having families and kids of their own who have a vested interest in fixing the gaming industry now and putting it on a better course so that we don't have uh, microtransactions and loot boxes of this nature as the new norm from here on out. Mm-hmm. So I feel like if people want to get involved, um, the first thing is to get in touch with your elected officials, get in touch with your community leaders, and just let them know you exist. And just say, hey, I'm here. 
this is an issue that's important to me. We want something better to come of it. Can you start looking into it? And just to put it on their radar, that is huge for a lot of people. And then once you build that relationship, make sure they're, they're carrying forward and working with you to get the result you want so that the right changes are made in the appropriate and right way. And I think that's something that is nonpartisan. We've had as many Republicans as Democrats reaching out on this one so far. And I think it's something that is um, universal and will ultimately shape the, the direction of the gaming industry for decades to come. All right. Well, we are, so I'm excited. are not residents of your state, so you don't have our votes, but you do, I think, have our support. Yes. <laughs> so We will come to visit. Yes, for sure. we'll establish residency. We'll make sure that you stay in the state legislature, can keep fighting on this issue. And come on. <laughs> we, appreciate we appreciate it. your- Yeah, come on out anytime. Otherwise, uh, I, I escaped to, uh, um, I have a rift now, actually, which is really exciting. But I've been escaping to two games. Um, Pavlov VR, which is like a, it's a first person shooter, uh, kind of an indie, but but it's like 10 bucks too. Oh, wow. So I'll be on there and Star Trek Bridge Crew. Ooh. Um, my name should be obvious. Ooh. You guys run into me, but uh, maybe I'll see you guys. Yes. Back. All right. No loot boxes in either of those games, I believe. Yeah. All right. Well, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Representative Chris Lee. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much. Aloha. Aloha. Jason, are you inspired? Are you out going door to door? Are you distributing flyers? Are you canvassing your neighbors? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I can't wait to uh, raise the clarion call (laughs) for all of us as a nation Democrats, Republicans, the Green Party. The issue that is bringing us all together in Libertarians, the anarchists, the communists, (laughs) the socialists. No one likes free market. No matter what you're side of the aisle, under the aisle, on top of the aisle. Let's take this down. Let's. It's time. Yeah. (laughs) All right. By the way, one quick thing we didn't mention about Nintendo. I guess the one kind of ding that you could apply to this year, they haven't really figured out mobile gaming. That was something that they were trying to do with Super Mario Run and, and the new Animal Crossing. They haven't really nailed that yet, but it almost feels like it doesn't matter that much because they have the dominant portable console and when you have the dominant portable console maybe it doesn't matter as much that you don't have dominant mobile games but if you want to find fault with nintendo's year i guess that's that's one place you could do it that and ryan reynolds is detective pikachu (laughs) 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 all right we can Uh, end there jason i had another thrill today when i opened up my podcaster my podcatcher of choice i got Binge Mode's music again. Fresh Binge Mode, Weekly Binge Mode. Tell the people about Weekly Binge Mode. This is not Game of Thrones until 2019. So you're filling the time, you and Mal. You're tackling other topics. That's right. In Binge Mode Weekly, Mallory Rubin and I, your editor, Mm -hmm. my friend, we're going to be talking about the topics that fascinate us from week to week. So a more weekly focus, it could be a book, it could be a movie, it could be a Netflix show, it could be anything at all. It could be college football, it could be basketball. Uh, and this week it is Black Mirror through the lens of three of our favorite yes. episodes of Black Mirror. 
Mm-hmm. Not playtest. A great show. I'm guessing not not your favorite. Not, play. <laughs> not playtest. No, <laughs> it was it was gaming related. You talked about yeah. that on on the watch list uh, last time it came out. So we will wrap up there. We'll be back in the usual time slot next week, unless I am so rich on the tenth of a bitcoin that I own that I can retire <laughs> and not podcast anymore. It's what is best. it up to like 60 grand now? What is it? <laughs> Not quite. I, I won't even cite the price because by the time people hear this, it'll either be half right, that or that's twice true. that. We don't want to, we don't want to, we don't want to date ourselves. <laughs> yeah. But I, it was, it's the best birthday present I've ever gotten. My cousin gave me $35 in Bitcoin four years wow. ago. It is now. Sell Ben. <laughs> as we speak. Ben, sell. It's worth uh, like three Xbox One X's right now. So I feel like wow. I should get out. But. Aren't you aren't you glad that you didn't go on to Silk Road and to buy like an eighth of cocaine like <laughs> like two and a half years ago with yeah. your Bitcoin I mean, you and don't, now it's you like don't know that I didn't do that too, but Right, I, that's true, I'm just saying. Yeah. So anyway, I'll either be here or I'll be ruined because I'll have invested even more and, and lost everything. But one way or another, we'll be back soon. You've been listening to Achievement Oriented, part of the Ringer Podcast Network.